1: Welcome back as we head into our three. I am Seth Leapson making up for lost time, making up for lost credit, making up for missed class. It is our well, it is our teacher. Uh, Hugh Hallman is uh, back in town and uh, we missed him on Tuesday. Uh, So um, he was in the hood and I uh, thought we would uh, snag him while we could. And it's a pleasure to have him back in studio, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, educator. Hugh, good to see you, man. Welcome back.
2: It is great to be seen. Thank you for that. And if I'm here making up a class and extra credits, then I'm the student, not the teacher. Let's keep that clear. You're the teacher for all of us, and I'm grateful. <laughs> and as a result, I'm going to call on yet again your monologue from the first hour, oh. which calls out the left for now weaving within every element of our life— some drumbeat yeah. of their political vision yeah. in everything yeah. you can't turn the sports page without reading about yeah, the, the
1: style section we we're talking uh, about the style section in the washington post yeah, page. So, right. Uh, right so the,
2: the monologue hits the style section right. but i was going to go with you start with the sports page and whether or not black lives matter on the in, uh, end zone uh striping or at the nba game or uh the black national anthem right. at the uh, at the super bowl right. uh interesting you'd pointed out the fact that they moved it from being the first national anthem to the second national anthem in order to assure that people would continue standing, but the national broadcast didn't cover it. That's right. They cut away, and so you didn't end up with that controversy at all. Uh, which I thought was fascinating. So maybe now there should be a controversy about the fact that the, the <laughs> national news me- or the national sports media did not cover the black national anthem, <laughs> clearly disrespecting a whole uh, cadre of folks. It's a, actually a lovely song if you've never heard it or sung it. Uh, I have, having attended many many
1: events at which it's uh, de rigueur. It's a lovely song. It's just not the national anthem. Correct.
2: It yeah, is not so the national. We have a
1: lot of lovely songs on. Yes, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> We're going uh, to get in that, fact
2: actually. we have yeah, the there, Seth yeah. <laughs> anthem, which we it, we <laughs> will now call it the. Seth Leibson National Anthem oh, uh, done by the Saunas Brothers as, oh, yeah. uh, uh, as the uh, oh, yeah, theme yeah. for this show yeah. okay. uh, taken from uh, a piece that we both love. In any event, yeah. uh, your monologue talks about the Washington Post style section now weaving within it yeah. the politicization of style and uh, culture and other stuff that had nothing to do with politics. And interesting to me, I believe uh, make uh, Ayn Rand fiction again is what applies here because she wrote the fountainhead in 1943 is when it was published and it is a story about a guy who's seeking to be a common architect she modeled it after the guy she thought was Frank Lloyd Wright meaning that she had a vision of what Frank Lloyd Wright was ultimately uh, that is not who he was according to him and her they met once Um, but She writes in that story about a newspaper publisher who is publishing a newspaper that he sees over time getting invested in all of these crazy leftist ideals. And she's writing that in in the early 1940s, having come from escaped from the Soviet Union. Seeing that market Marxist dogma, uh, the dialectic of deny, then admit and then mandate. uh, Mm -hmm. And and in fact, in this instance, that's what she's writing about, that she sees this newspaper publisher who is quite a business oriented, free liberal, uh, classical liberal libertarian watching the handiwork of his life be turned by these Marxists within his agency in every aspect of the newspaper. It's a wonderful read and the object lesson for what is now happening today. So you see in your monologue, you describe in your monologue that the style section is commenting on uh, conservatives whining about everything being psyops and (laughs) suggesting somehow that it isn't. Now I don't, I don't prescribe to the kind of crazy stuff that some of our our friends and uh, fellow travelers, colleagues uh, traffic in. But they're not wrong to be pointing out the fact that things that should not have been political have been made political. We just talked about the sports page and all things sports uh, that uh, that. The left Marxists running Black Lives Matter inserted everything they wanted, not just about, you know, discrimination isn't good and and people shouldn't die at the hands of police and uh, who are black, et etc. Those issues were real. And yet they infused everything they did with the most obscene leftist Marxist doctrine they possibly could. And then we had the media fellow travelers covering their behinds about all of that you know talking about the the summer of love when actually dozens of people died in black lives matters riots but that was peaceful protest and no police officers died on January 6th at the Capitol, but the press seems to infuse everything they write that, yes, indeed, police officers died as a result of the January 6th uh, tr- troubles. Now, how that? How do you square those circles unless you recognize, as you do in your monologue, that we've got this leftist press drive to politicize everything, and I, I loved how you wrote it, the uh, political cultural DDT that they spray throughout um, our lives these days—it's lovely phrasing. That's just spectacularly good. Um, uh, so, yes, ladies and gentlemen, you need to listen to it uh, 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 when uh, if you missed it in the first hour, then hat- please hat download Hat tip to it. Rachel Carson on yes, all that yes, too. Indeed. Yeah, right. Okay. Right. But but the reality is we've got that problem, and so with that in mind, uh, I wanted to point out another trend associated with that that you politicize everything and then in this dialectic process you deny then you admit then you mandate and that is related to what's going on now in the world we've talked about the fact that in my view we have really three very risky flashpoints we have russia and ukraine We have Hamas blowing up Israel with Iran backing those efforts and China threatening Taiwan. And what I find ironic here, we've now got a destabilized world with Joe Biden at the helm. And somehow that destabilization is still Republicans' fault (laughs) at every turn. Now, wait a minute. Aren't they in charge of the Senate? They have the executive offices. The only branch that they don't quite control is uh, half of half of the legislature, and that is the House by a couple of votes, except that given the number of votes that Republicans have and some of the infighting that only Republicans are seem able to really pull <laughs> off well, uh, cannibalism is alive and well, if that's not a contradiction in terms. Uh, but, of course, the judiciary. And now if, uh, the left is completely... Uh, outraged at the idea that justices would be activists and change the law and reverse precedent when it's conservatives. They were quite happy to have activist judges for 60 years on the court moving our laws to the left. And now when the, uh, the conservative justices appointed by Donald Trump have led the way to say, wait a minute, we want to move back 20 years or 30 years or 40 years to a different position. Abortion being the most extreme example of that. The, the left has gone nuts. The press has gone nuts. It's always the right who are creating blocks to abortion. And yet the only thing the Supreme Court did was say, take it to the states. Then, just last week, the leftist press announces that Donald Trump is seeking to enforce, seeking to instill a 16-week abortion ban abortion ban. Wait a minute. I think what the former president is advocating is one week longer than what I suggested on this show. That is the right sort of place. We seem to be congealing if you listen across the breadth of the U.S., that if you did a 15-week abortion period where up to 15 weeks abortion can be unregulated, But after the second trimester
1: is what we're talking
2: about. right? Well, let's I was going to bring that up as the punchline. You know, the left goes crazy. We read some articles previously about the fact that it's a ban if it's at 15 weeks, uh, somehow eliminating all abortions. And yet that's one week into the second trimester. And Donald Trump is now proposing two weeks into the second trimester. So a woman would miss plug your ears, uh, you know, what, what do we call these, uh, uh, trigger alerts. Yes. Um, I'm going to use a word that maybe some people were offended by. A woman will have missed two periods in that time. Right. So one would hope that a woman would understand she may be pregnant by then. But as important, we see that approximately 96% of all abortions currently rendered in the United States today are rendered before 15 weeks. So we're now talking about a 4% issue. And yet the left seems to say that everything depends on keeping abortion available at all times when 96% of these acts are taken before 15 weeks. That's the kind of agitprop that is going on that the right calls out and is now being ridiculed for not just on the front pages or in the opinion pages of the Washington Post, but now in
1: the style section. Hugh Hallman is my guest. I want to stay with the courts for a second. Um, and well, you this, have 24. Uh, well, we have, okay. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Hugh Hallman is my guest, former mayor of Tempe, attorney, educator, and many other things. Um, you going to take your bride out dancing tonight, speaking uh, of?
2: In, in, in fact, we might go dancing uh, if one does that in a parking lot, because we're going to go to a, a lovely little restaurant in Tempe called Rift. It's actually technically in Scottsdale, uh, uh, because we have agreed to help support them. Okay. And uh, they have food trucks out in their parking lot. And if there is music playing, I will, in your honor and your, uh, uh, based on your comment, uh, take a spin around the parking lot. I, yeah,
1: if people don't know this about you, I'm just going to embarrass you for a second. Maybe it's not an embarrassment, but you are extremely uh, – is the phrase light on your feet? You are an amazing dancer. Well,
2: I'm light on other people's feet is what I, <laughs> I, I think actually is the, the
1: case. I'll never forget that first time I – it's probably the second time I saw you. It was the first time it was an, an event. Anyway.
2: Uh, he's he's wistfully different... <laughs> thinking about the fact yeah, that— Yeah, I...
1: wistful. Move on. Yes. Move on. Move All on. right.
2: Uh, so uh, you wanted to go back
1: to the but courts. But we are going to do country music on this hour. Yes. We have something to say about Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Okay, go Absolutely.
2: on. So, oh, the courts. the courts.
1: Yeah, no, no. Let me make this point about the courts, Hugh. See if you agree about what the left screams about with regard <clears throat> to conservatism in the court. It really started in a big way probably in the nineteen eighties. And if we needed a flashpoint or a touch point, it would be the Robert Bork nomination in 1986-87, I guess. Um and if you think about the philosophy of Robert Borks and you know his work is, as well as anyone's as well as anyone does, his judicial philosophy was no different. I think it's fair to say no different than almost all the justices Franklin Roosevelt nominated and appointed to the Supreme Court. I don't think Robert Bork's judicial philosophy would have raised an eyebrow from Felix Frankfurter. I don't think it would have raised an eyebrow from Hugo Black. I don't think it would have raised an eyebrow from Robert Jackson. And I just think it's important for people to understand that was liberalism. That's all I want to say about the radicalism of the left when it comes to the courts. They have made monumental changes in the courts and now say that our efforts to restore it to something like a New Deal judicial philosophy is the radical thing. I I, I think I'm right about that.
2: Well, uh, Robert Levy uh, wrote uh, a, a very short book about legal reasoning that explained or tried to explain The difference between what had traditionally been uh, the way just judges would approach their work and what started popping up in the 60s and 70s, that it's whatever the judge has for breakfast and it is their job to instill some philosophy into uh, their judicial decisions that moves us left and that they effectively were arguing, the legal scholars at the time, that it was always the case that uh, judges were making things up and dragging the country into whatever (laughs) political philosophy they supported. I happen to believe that wrong, uh, that the Levy book really did a nice job. University of Chicago, by the way, uh, uh, from the law school there, uh, really did a nice work trying to explain how – the judicial process is supposed to work that one has to create an analogy from the case it's before one the reason a case is before one is because you don't know exactly this set of facts isn't like any other that's appeared and you've got to reason through how to get make a decision based on precedent stare decisis and taking that precedent and addressing this particular case and sometimes you got to wiggle a little bit. Well, the judges are called on to think very hard about how do I draft something that other people in this profession as judges and lawyers won't ridicule as being a complete miscarriage of justice because I've stretched the law too far. Well, occasionally the law would get stretched that far and lots of writing takes place among legal scholars and other judges and more opinions and appeals that help flush out Was that step correct or a right change in the direction? That's how slow the process is supposed to be. So if you think through how our founders created this, and of course, this process of uh, looking at the Constitution was a judge-made concept, as you know early on in our country's life. But ultimately, everybody went, of course, that had to be the case. You had to have that mechanism. So our Supreme Court gets to interpret our Constitution on what that the meaning is because it's a fairly short document to regulate a country as crazy as this. And so you now have this process by which judges and justices are supposed to go through to make decisions and the left pushing to imbue it with their philosophy. And yet all of that Effort was always going through this very slow process compared to the House being the very hot flash pan elected every two years and reflective of the national desires of the people's passions of faction, as we know from uh, the Federalist Papers. Madison, thank you. But the Senate being a much cooler place. Well, we screwed that up by changing that to direct election. I happen to view that that probably was ultimately a mistake in terms of the stability of our country. Having legislatures elect the senators made sure that that level of connection to senators between the people and their passions and senators was moderated, and then they continued to reflect the state's interests, which was part of the balance in our Constitution, because they were selected by state legislators. All important. And then the court is even slower at allowing those changes to our laws. That was intended. And somehow in the last 70 years, the left got control of the court in a way that they were able to force into it much quicker movement on a whole variety of fronts, creating uh, constitutional rights, a penumbra of rights that create the Roe decision, among other kinds of things. And the left is now crazy about the fact that the court would dare try to reverse that process and say, no, we're really going to go back to... Attaching our decisions to prior precedent and in looking at the precedents that were structured in the last 70 years, which one of them undermined the constitutional framework on which this society was based and the overruling row, not to say you can't have abortions, but to say that's a decision for the states has driven the left mad. They want national standards for certain actions that they want but do not want any of that kind of activity on the right. So that's why they call out banning books yeah. on the right when there's nobody on the right that I know of banning any books.
1: It's harder to get conservative books than liberal books these days. Um, 70% of the population lived within 100 miles of illegal abortion in 1972. Let's just... Prior to Roe. Right. Let's just point that out. But do you think... You, <clears throat> the judicial activism of the left that we have spoken about can be fairly summarized as saying that the left has tried to achieve through the judiciary things that they could not achieve through the ballot box and and we're seeing a new iteration of that with the new york state attorney general with the georgia district attorney and with the courts in Washington, D.C., they are trying to obtain through the judiciary or the judicial process or the prosecutor's office something they can't seem to stop at the ballot box.
2: That is correct. So now, and to be less subtle, yeah. you've got it certainly over 70 years at the the major courts in our country. Now the prosecutorial branch right. and the enforcement branches, the FBI and local se- uh, security interests, are all, all now trying to attack political participants to prevent them actually from engaging in the democratic process, all in the name of saving democracy. Yeah. The <laughs> greatest right. irony that, you know, you've got the the uh, Secretary of State of Maine unelected uh, right. taking Donald Trump off the ballot because she rubs sand in her belly button and makes a decision. <laughs> yeah, that's democratic. <laughs> all
1: right. When we come back, I know you came in with a bunch of stuff we need to cover on the international front. Let's go back to Joe Biden and the leadership of America on that one. Hugh Hallman and I will be right back. I know what to do with this. Little Dolly Parton. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. You know what? Let's take the moment to to show the style section, what, what culture is for a moment. Because you sent me a somewhat abstruse email this morning saying we have to talk about – african-american female country singers (laughs) i tried to call you all morning because you piqued my interest you did to me what i do to you when you're asleep i i I light a match and walk away i throw a grenade in the room and while you did that to me with that and now i have you what do you want to talk about with african-american female country singers i
2: just this is an example of the left um uh african-american uh country singers have been frequent uh Given that so much of that early country was coming out of the South and the proportion of the population involved in that uh, music uh, were African-Americans or I'm going to use the word black because some of them weren't from Africa. That is their descendants came from other places where skin happened to be darker than than uh, the Anglos around them. And uh, that's an important distinction to make. Uh, And important that we hang on to that because the the insistence that everybody who's got black skin is African-American is just absolutely false. And it drives me nuts, especially given the number of people I know from other countries that aren't Africa where that uh, trait exists. So let's put that aside. You've got, you know, a number of really impressive artists And now that we have a new star who's just crossed over and released something that was announced at the Super Bowl.
1: Beyonce, yeah, right? Beyonce. And Tracy Chapman. And and Tracy Chapman. So So
2: Beyonce hits number one on the countryside. And the left goes nuts. This is amazing. It's like, well, the only reason you don't know how many black artists are in country music is because you would never deign to listen to
1: it. That's right.
2: We know the style section would not otherwise have ever thought to cover it, right. and hasn't right. because let's see, uh, someone in the country music genre just passed away a couple of weeks ago, and I just don't remember a big deal made of it Toby in the Keith. style section. That's what I'm making yeah. the point, yeah. and so country music—he was really hasn't, Yeah, that's right. that's right. Doesn't get his due. Yeah. Uh, uh, country music doesn't get its due because it is beneath the style section of the New York Times or the Washington Post and except now. And so that's why I sent you that. It just, it struck me as almost absurd that the left is going nuts over Beyonce having achieved this because they just don't know the number of black artists that have been wildly successful and whose background started in country.
1: Yeah, it's a fair point. I, I was thinking a little bit about the Tracy Chapman stuff and there was a controversy about that. It was... It was so bad that people were defending her honor that she didn't ask for. You know, they thought that her music was being appropriated, and she went to the music awards to perform that song to say, no, 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 I am so happy you like it. (laughs) You know, I am so happy you have given my song new life after 20 years. Um, But you're absolutely right. Regionally, it would make all the sense in the world. And as my friends, you mentioned the Sonis Brothers uh, earlier, as, as Thana and Dimitri like to say, you know, every nation has its country music. And it really sings more to the soul and fabric of their country than most of the stuff in pop. I mean, if you look at country music, Ch- Tracy Chapman's song, or for that matter, Beyonce's, or who was – um. Darius Rucker, he he moved over, uh, not a man, not a woman, but certainly a black man into into the country genre. The things they sing about are the things of life. Now I don't know We're that leaving
2: the, out people like Charlie Pride, for example. Well, of
1: course we play a lot of Charlie Pride here, and uh, it's, Dagny was brought up on Charlie Pride. That's music. the point. Yeah,
2: and, and you you you're making the broader point that every country has its country music. Yeah. And yet we denigrate our yeah. country yeah. music because it's not the right culture. We right. can only admire other people's cultures right. and the the folk songs and the folk music and their country music. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, having spent a lot of time in the former Soviet countries, uh, each one of them has a very distinct. You got to see the Kazakhstani yeah. uh, performance uh, in December You know, Russian folk music, country music from Russia, is very moving Mm -hmm. and uh, really uh, broad and deep. Uh, It often it caused me in college to ask the question of a of a uh, Russian music scholar. You know, did the music prompt the revolution, or did the revolution prompt the music? Because it has that impact on us, and it is that country music that you were talking about that touches the soul of the country and the people within it.
1: Alcohol. Drugs, love, marriage. I mean, it's everything. The daily stuff. The daily stuff. Absolutely right. All right. You want to do some international stuff when we come right back? Please. Be right back. So we went out with some Charlie Pride. We're coming back with some Charlie Pride. Whole lot of things. This is what I meant. I raised Dagny as a little puppy. On I, I would come home and sing this to her, and she'd dance around. So she Dagny Dagny is you you mentioned uh, her. <laughs> Dagny's a character out of a different Anne Rand novel. Mister Hallman, um, very good. Help me here. Uh, what what are we doing with Taiwan? So what? The reason what are we I doing wanna, with American leadership.
2: Yeah, the reason I wanted to touch on this based on your monologue about you know the everything's political. Uh, in the Washington Post now and the New York Times and other aspects of life. And yet the important stuff they like to play games with in such a way that we're no longer getting decent coverage and we're no longer getting objective analysis. Every news story is now got an opinion driving it. And uh, it, the, the best example I could think of was NPR Today, Ran a story about Taiwan and the fact that the Taiwanese no longer trust uh, the United States. That Chiang Kai-shek uh, was, as the story explains, under the thumb of the U.S., and every time he wanted to go back and invade China, the U.S. wouldn't let him do it. Well, how did we do that? We said, well, we're not going to supply you weapons, uh, and you know we don't think that's a good idea because, well, given the number of people you got and the number of people they got, you ain't going to win here and we had made commitments to taiwan for its protection and very carefully the the reporter talks about the fact and then the united states turned its back on taiwan and changed course and selected china to be the country they would recognize in 1979. So very passive. (laughs) Absolutely. Had it been a Republican president, it would have said, the dastardly Republican president turned its back on Taiwan and these wonderful people. Betrayed
1: our ally. Uh,
2: Exactly right. And of course why wasn't it said that way? Because the president was Jimmy Carter. It was one of the reasons he lost the presidency was Ronald Reagan made a big deal about the fact that he turned the U.S. and Goldwater but in the 70, in the 80 that that he turned the U.S. into a feckless ally. Well, now you understand why I'm so passionate about Ukraine. We signed a deal with the folks in Ukraine that said, you give up your nuclear weapons, which make us all safer, that they won't fall into the wrong hands, and we will agree. And we stuck Russia's nose on the paper and said, you will sign this to steal a little bit from the godfather Either your signature or your brains will be on this piece of paper. So Russia signed it. The U.S. signed it. Great Britain and Northern Ireland. All four of those signed this deal called the Budapest Memorandum that said we would honor the Ukrainian border. And in 2014, Barack Obama... Pound your chest, Barack Obama carrying around his Nobel Peace Prize turned his back on Ukraine when Russia rolled into Crimea. Now, I will tell you as a historic matter, I can explain that that's not so big a deal. But Barack Obama didn't even try. He didn't understand the issue. And he and his Secretary of State Hillary Clinton hit the reset button with Vladimir Putin, our close friend. And that's how things have started to get out of control. Barack Obama started this process in his understudy who is now modestly incompetent, is viewed as carrying on that tradition. And we had a break in between called Donald Trump, where Russia was in tow, China was in tow, and Iran was in tow. How did he do that? He upset the leftist press. That's the real point here. From 2019, outrage 10 times Trump attacked China and its trade relations with the U.S. He's creating a terrible environment. And they're playing the same theme now, that if Donald Trump gets elected president, our international relations will be in tatters and will have no good reputation. The reason I point this out is NPR play that news story again, Mm -hmm. because you understand our failure to support Taiwan and our withdrawal under a Democrat president and after President Reagan and The first George Herbert Walker Bush, the second George W. Bush. We have failed to continue to support Taiwan enough, and we've been sucking up to China, except for Donald Trump, who the press then excoriates for holding China accountable for its crazy activities that are undermining the U.S. economy, stealing our trade secrets and taking aggressive action towards its neighbors. He Although the Democrats create a Russian dossier and say Donald Trump's in bed with the Russians and creating all sorts of Russian interference that didn't exist, he actually kept Russia in tow. Now, whether you do it because you're a friend or because you're, you're going to hit him hard, either one, I don't care, you keep him in tow. And Iran certainly understood the message when he said, you see this nonsense that Barack Obama did? Rip and said, we're not doing this. We're not going to let you go down this road. And all of that destabilized only one thing, the left, yeah. because it stabilized the international environment, because the U.S. stood tall, stood strong, and notwithstanding the fact, go through the articles, look in 17, 18, 19, the excoriation by the press of, of Donald Trump for taking on the Chinese. How dare he? And now, magically, four years later, it's Republicans' fault, as NPR says, That Taiwan is now at risk and Ukraine is now at risk because those nasty Republicans are blocking the funding that the Democrats now want to do for Ukraine and Taiwan nonsense. It's the same point about the border. Just today, news stories about the fact that dear President Biden is now thinking about yeah, right. exercising the executive authority he already has to stop people from coming across the border. Wait a minute. It was just three weeks ago. He said he couldn't do it. Right. It's impossible. He needed
1: legislation.
2: He needed legislation. And now they found the power because the damage has been done to his reputation and he's trying to save it. They first attempted to blame Republicans entirely for sinking a bill that had Some significant loopholes in it. Our question was at the time, you know, why is it okay for 5,000 people to cross illegally? Why is that the number instead of zero? That the President of the United States would have the authority under the legislation to say, I'm going to close the border because nobody should be coming across illegally. Well, they didn't want to do that. They wanted five thousand a day. And as my son, Lewis pointed out at the time, you do the math. Five thousand a day times three hundred and sixty five is a big number. (laughs)
1: Um, Let me ask you about a question I asked John Shadig yesterday. Um, We'll do it in our last segment in just a few moments about the divisions in the Republican Party today on our foreign policy posture versus other times in our post-cold, or post-World cold or post War II uh, divisiveness within the party. Just get your sense of it. Is it about the same as we had when it was Robert Taft versus Eisenhower? Is it about the same when there was this isolationist tug in the new right? Is it about the same? Or is it... Um, is it uh, <sighs> Thermometrically hotter. Hugh Hallman will answer that question when we come right back. Sometime the silver tongue gets a little rusty. Thermometrically hotter is what we were trying to say uh, in that last segment. Uh, Hugh Hallman has been my guest. Thank you for the hour, Hugh. There have been divisions in our movement and in our party uh, as far as our international posture and the muscularity around which we wanted to support it, whether it was Taft versus Eisenhower in the fifties, or whether it was some of the tug within the ranks of National Review and the New Right in the sixties, and perhaps again here today, um, there is these there are these debates, whether it's about Taiwan or whether it's about Ukraine or whether it's about Israel and Iran, the Middle East. Is it same as it always been, or do you think it is thermometrically hotter?
2: I think it is different, and it is different for this reason. Uh, we had Republicans who were a significant part of the party and the movement um, who were isolationists before World War II. And that turns out to be, in hindsight, a really bad position to be in. And certainly the the British understood that and were fearing what would happen to them. And as you've often quoted Winston Churchill, when the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor, he knew that uh, they had just awakened the giant and the giant would respond and he could sleep a very good sleep that night, not because he appreciated the murder of Americans, but because he knew
1: the U.S. would respond to it. I believe he said the war was won that day.
2: That's in his heart and yeah. mind,
1: I think. Yeah.
2: And so we've talked about the fact that we don't now have the time, given the technology it's uh, available, to keep our enemies who would do us harm at bay uh, through waiting. We must be prepared. And if you want to avoid war, the best way to do that, to use that saw, is to be prepared for war. And in this instance, we have a lot of stuff that is going forward properly. But the one thing we cannot risk is what, in honesty, the NPR story raises. Having our friends think we're a feckless ally Because having those allies are important, not just for their benefit, but for our benefit. And the analysis I look at is one should always measure, is it in the U.S. interest? But one of the important things one has to weigh in that balance is, is it ever in the U.S. interest to go back on our word and be viewed as a feckless ally? We signed the Budapest Memorandum to protect Ukraine. We got a lot for it. And we have used Ukraine as we have used Taiwan to keep Russia and China, respectively, in check. And now we have our allies in the east part of Europe worried that we're not going to be there for them when the time comes. We can't have Lithuania, Estonia and Latvia thinking that we can't have Poland thinking that we can't have uh, Sweden and Finland and Norway feckless as they are thinking that Donald Trump was right. These allies should be paying the price of their own defense. The U.S. should not be carrying more of that burden than those people themselves. The press made fun of him for doing that. And now Joe Biden is trying to get that done. We're right.
1: They're wrong. Thank you all. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth and class is dismissed.